Welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. I am Black on the Air. I was just talking with Zach, the very talented engineer, producer, everything. Zach, you do everything here, right? And including Root for LeBron. He does it all. He's trying. Zach's trying to get LeBron to Los Angeles, which I don't know. We'll see if that's going to happen. You know, Zach, I'll put it like this. If LeBron comes to L.A., I will be a complete LeBron fan. How about that? Because, <laughs> you know, I'm a Lakers fan. So if you play for the Lakers, then... There you go. But if you don't play for the Lakers, not my fault. Um, so much going on. I'm recording this on June 20th, the day, and President Trump just, uh, God, I, I still can't. You know what? I have a slow, like a real small vomit in my mouth, even when I say President Trump. You know, I just, <clears throat> I just have it again. Sorry, guys. It's just hard to say that. Um, he had a press conference today. I didn't see the press conference, but I think he's signing an executive order. He's he's basically putting out the fire that he started and trying to take credit for being a fireman. I mean, that's what Trump does. It's so insane. You know, he gives back the jewels that he stole, you know, and wants the reward at the same time. Uh, he's such an asshole, you guys. You know, Trump, Trump, I tried to tell people, Trump is a dick. I mean, that whole policy that they passed, of separating the families. They didn't have to do that. And that was a policy. Stop saying it was a law. That's just a dick move. Like, Trump is like the Bobby Fischer of dick moves. <laughs> he really is, you guys. I mean, that's, if he, see, I, I think he's incompetent in most areas, but not when it comes to dick moves. I actually do think he is competent at dick moves. Um, art of the deal should have been art of the dick move. Because, the, in fact, if you read that book, that's really what it is. It's about the best way to do a dick move. You know, and a dick move, of course, is when you're a complete sociopath, could care less about the consequences of your actions, which are always completely self-serving. That is a dick move. And that is exactly what the president did. And now he's trying to take back his own dick move and acting like like we're supposed to be happy about it. Oh, stop it. You know, um, but it is interesting, all the noise around this area, because I think both sides, <laughs> I'm going to use president's side, both sides. But um, I get annoyed with both sides in this type of issue. And I know it sounds bizarre, but I really do. Because I guess because I live in California and I've been around people who have come up from our southern border, you know, ever since I was a kid. And, you know, for me, my point of view is that people are fleeing here for a better life. And I always feel like I've always had a feeling that the United States should have a I ain't mad at you policy. Like at the border itself, right? At the border itself, if you get caught trying to sneak in, fine. The rules are you can't sneak in. That's against the law. You know, you can't do that. You get sent back, right? You know, if you're trying to, if you're seeking asylum, that's a different thing. That's a specific request. I get that. Different category. But if you're just your, <laughs> your average whatever, you know, trying to sneak in here because you're fleeing your country for whatever reasons, for a better life, you're not seeking asylum. You're just trying to get in here, right? And those distinctions, by the way, should be made clear. I, I'm, I can't make them right now. I need to do some work on that. But if you make it here and you're not caught and you start working, I ain't mad at you. I say go for it. I mean, for Christ's sake, so like so much of the work that's been done in California um, in my lifetime has been done by migrant workers who came here illegally and eventually got a foothold in this country, you know, had children here, put them through school. You know, these kids uh, ended up having— you know, lives here, they were very productive lives, and everybody contributed to the society. And, and 
I think people ultimately win in that scenario. But this whole zero tolerance thing is just doesn't I don't think it ultimately works. You know, Obama, um, he tried his hand at it with the DACA policy, but that's, you know, keeping people here. But I don't know what we're going to do with the amount of people fleeing right now. It's a problem, and I don't think there's any solution to it. But, um, but okay, let me just talk about the left for a second, because I do think the left overreacted a bit to this. And I know it's like, but Larry, people were taken away from there. From their parents and everything. I know, I know. It's sad. I don't, I don't, I think it was horrible. But some of the reactions were just out of line. Like there was one um, reaction where it was comparing the places that the people were kept. <laughs> well, I'll talk about the right. Don't worry. Uh, wait, let me just talk about this real quick because this is ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> okay. These were obviously cages, right? People were put into cages. I think we can all agree on that. Now, who was it that said, uh, was it the the Secretary of Health and Human Services who didn't, who said it wasn't a cage, it was just an enclosed area and there was chain link put around it or something? <laughs> it was just a spot where we're just having to put some chain around it and a fence around it. We didn't know people were going to sit there, you know? I mean, it looks like a cage, but it's not. Stop it. It's a fucking cage, right? But having said that, it's not what the Nazis did. I mean, some people were comparing it to Auschwitz. I don't like those kind of comparisons. And I'll tell you why. Because Auschwitz was horrible. Jews were taken in there and, of course, were killed in the concentration camps. That's a completely different thing. We're, we're not—what's going on there is not what happened in the concentration camps. I don't like doing that because I feel it diminishes what happened to the Jews in that area. But then when people try to talk it back and try to explain it, it just gets worse and worse. And then, of course, Jeff Sessions tries to act all snotty. <laughs> he even gets it wrong where he says, um, you know, well, actually, the, Hitler tried to keep the Jews in. No, Hitler didn't try to keep. Hitler tried to ship the Jews to any place that would take them. But guess what? All of Europe was anti-Semitic uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. Europe, Well, however long Europe has been around, it's been anti-Semitic. Hitler wanted to permanently get rid of Jews is what he wanted to do. He didn't want to hold on to the Jews like teddy bears or something like that. So stop it with that. So Laura Ingram also compared these. Uh, so they're not concentration camps on the one side. So stop at the left. But then on the right, you have people like Laura Ingram saying it's like summer camp. What kind of camp is this? What kind of camp removes you from your family? Okay, granted, you're right. Most camps do. They tell the parents to go home. I get it. You're right. But. Not like a toddler. There's no toddler camp, you guys, that's out uh, in the Poconos or something like that, or baby camps where you just, uh, where you're torn away from your parents' arm and the babies are crying. So it, it's just insane, all the rhetoric around this. So I just think we need to dial down some of it and think a little clearly, have some clear thoughts about this and start trying to do the right thing. Let's talk about the real reason why people are trying to come into this country. And let's talk about a real human approach to solving this. I wish people would talk about this. And let's not get too caught up in Trump's uh, sins of the day. Because this motherfucker, he's going to do this shit all the time, you guys. Okay? But, but, you know, calling this a Nazi thing is not the right thing here. And trust me, I believe he's capable of doing some some Nazi shit, I'm sure. But this is not it. And I think overreacting to some of these things can distract us from doing the right thing on this and finding the right solutions to it. 
I guess it's part of me hoping hoping for the high ground in this, you know. And sometimes I just don't see it on either side. Although the left had definitely the moral high ground on this. The other thing is in this situation is when uh, is this whole quoting the Bible, which is so hilarious to me, where Sessions tries to quote the Bible, which we know they did that to justify everything like slavery and that sort of thing. And then Hillary comes back. I love that Hillary thinks she's still in the game. She comes back <laughs> and, and quotes the Bible in a rebuttal. Can we stop quoting the Bible, please, you guys? Here's what I'd like us all to do. Because the Bible has a lot of, yeah, the Bible has a lot of good stuff in it, but there's a lot of fucked up shit in the Bible, too. Let's be honest about it. I mean, there's a lot of fucked up shit in the Bible, including the acknowledgement, the tacit acknowledgement and blessing of slavery in many ways. But here's what I'd like us to do. Let's have a different kind of book club. I want everybody to send me their suggestions of a different book that we can start quoting from and giving suggestions to have a better life and to do these things. Because we're, the Bible's only going to divide us in this way. People are always going to find a quote that can be misinterpreted. Um, I'm going to go for Outliers, the Malcolm Gladwell book. Um, I think that's a good one. takes 10,000 hours to be able to do something well. I think there's a good quote for you. Um, so send me your suggestions. I don't know. What kind of book? Or what's your favorite book that I think we should start uh, that we should start quoting? That's fine. Taking it, we'll see what's going to happen with true immigration reform. Trump is a dick, and let's just dial it down, man. Keep some clear heads. Do the right thing, because um, he's got to go. So we got to do it right. All right, that's all I got. We got Senator Tim Kaine on the show. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. A senator from Virginia, of course, ran with Hillary. I think you know what happened. But um, we had a good conversation uh, earlier, and we talked a lot about these issues. So stick around. I think you'll enjoy it. All right. Welcome back. Honored to have on the show Senator Tim Kaine, almost our vice president of the United States. Welcome, Senator. Hey, Larry. Great to be with you. Yeah, don't believe that fake news. I know. Yeah, I feel like it was so <laughs> close. I'll talk about that in a little bit, but there's so many things going on right now, Senator. And thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us today. I, You know, it's so funny. As I'm saying these words, I was like, man, it'd be so great if if anybody could just call a senator or call somebody and say, please help us, what's going on? Give yeah, us, yeah. Give us some, some insight into the process. First, I want to get your take on, there's breaking news right now, and I'm recording this on January 20th, on a Wednesday, and I think the president just issued an executive order uh, putting out the fire that he started, I believe. Trying to. So, yeah, it's interesting, Larry, that the day we're recording is June 20 is World Refugee Day. So it yes. is the day every year where exactly. we, we we think about the needs of refugees all over the globe. And um, the president's put out an executive order. We're still digging into it. But it basically says, look, if you – it clearly says this. If you mm-hmm. come to the border and cross and you're here illegally, right. we will not separate you from your family as we – figure out what to do unless there's some, you know, some showing that the child may be endangered by the family member they're with. But but it doesn't answer another question that I'm digging into, which is a lot of people are coming to our border. They're not here illegally. They're coming and saying, I want to file for asylum. Right. So they're trying to take advantage of a legal process that the U.S. has long provided for people who are fleeing extreme situations. The AG announced last week, well, we're no longer going to allow asylum for violence or domestic abuse. But it's a little 
little unclear. You're not exactly here illegally if you come to a port of entry and say, I want to file for asylum. What's going to happen about that? And then the second thing that's very obvious Mm -hmm. and an obvious concern, what about the 2,400 kids that are in these places separated from their parents? They've already been separated, right? Yeah, what are you going to do to get them back together? One heartbreaking story that appeared in the papers right before Father's Day was of a Honduran father who came here with his wife and three-year-old son. He came Mm -hmm. after his brother-in-law was murdered by drug gangs in Copan, Honduras. I lived in Honduras many years ago. And when his child was taken away from him, he had a panic attack and and fought back. They put him in a jail cell and he committed suicide. Um, And and so I think there's going to be some we, we need to stay on this administration about the reunification of these families that were so heartlessly separated. Senator, you bring up an interesting point about Honduras and what goes on for a person's life in countries like that, where you have teenagers who come of age and gang members approach them and give them an ultimatum. You join us or, you know, sorry, no more life for you. You know, people that flee those situations, there's a story of a mom who— told her son to run after he had been beaten, you know, just to run for the border or whatever. Well, what is it about, how come most Americans really don't know what's actually happening with the immigration situation on the southern border? Yeah, Larry, we, I think it, it, those of us in this line of work, we have to do a better job of describing it because I'm going to take it to another level. It's not just Honduras is, I'll use Honduras as an mm-hmm. example, it's not just that the country there is so violent that parents make this Sophie's Choice type decision right. of sending their kid away or, or even the parent accompanying the child to leave. The violence in Honduras is related to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's U.S. consumption of illegal drugs grown in Colombia and Mexico and other places that are transiting north, and the U.S. dollars to pay for the drugs are transiting south. And when all that money goes into these tiny, poor communities, the gangs are fighting like hell to be the top dog and get the money. And so the violence that's driven in these neighborhoods is largely driven around a drug trade that's, that is there to feed an American consumer. So that, that, it's not that these kids are coming to the U.S. and we are unconnected to the pain in their lives that have caused them to lead leave their neighborhood, Mm -hmm. we are directly connected to the violence in their neighborhoods, and they are coming to seek refuge here. And so I I do believe we have some responsibility to try to get it right and not just turn a, you know, turn a hard heart to them when their neighborhoods are violent, in part because of what's happening in this country. Do you think that gives us a responsibility to give them the benefit of the doubt? I, I, I do believe it does, and and how would we then exercise that responsibility? Exactly. Well, here, the, here's a way. Yes, please. <laughs> here, so I, I had a hearing this morning on the the budget for the U.S. Agency for International Development. Now, USAID puts money into Central America to try to build up the police force, court system, and do economic development. And I asked the USAID director, Mark Green, I said, okay, so if you do those things – and and we make those investments, should that reduce the need for people to leave their own country? Absolutely, he said. Absolutely. It will reduce this push of migrants out of Honduras. And I said, then why is the administration proposing a budget that cuts these funds by more than 30% this year? 
you know, the, the right way to exercise the responsibility is to have humane treatment about people at the border to determine whether they should be able to lawfully enter or not and not take their kids away from them. But it also, it, it's in our own interest to try to help work with these governments to build up their civic institutions and, frankly, to invest more in drug prevention and drug treatment in the United States so that this this all-consuming demand for drugs doesn't flood these economies with dollars that then lead to violence and gangs and, and murder and leave sure. people to leave their And, homes. Senator, many of the things that you're talking about are not new ideas. You know, these things have been talked about for a long time, you know, in various in various forms, right? Um, why do you think, like, for instance, the Obama administration, who— I think didn't they start with the with the majority in both houses? I think yes. a, a simple one in the Senate. Nothing was done in immigration. It was one of the most disappointing things. And in fact, there was a a bill in the Bush administration. I think it was two thousand seven, which I think uh, had a lot of support as well. And nothing got done. Why? Right, you're right. There was yes. there was an effort at comprehensive immigration reform. You're exactly. right. It was oh six oh seven. Oh six oh seven. It was. Right. And it was bipartisan, it was and bipartisan. you had a Republican president yes. pushing it, but it got tanked by hardline um, anti-immigrant um, activists, mostly in the Republican Party at that mm-hmm. time. Even with the president, a Republican president pushing it, and even with the chairman of the Republican Party at the time, Mel Martinez, who was a Republican from Florida, the hardliners won out. And, well, and then Republicans you know, were, were punished for it politically. Um, people yeah, that, that those supported who, that. Yeah. Those who tried to support it, they were right. punished. And so mm-hmm. then we get into the Obama administration and, you know, the first term heavily focused on health care and, and other things. And I think that a lot of folks in the, uh, think the new American the community it? were disappointed. Yeah. It did. And then the pre- and then the president did turn his attention to it. I, I was new to the Senate in 2013 and the Senate did a big bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill. We got nearly 70 votes, all Democrats, but a healthy number of Republicans. The president worked very hard with us to do it, but this was the education of a naive Senator, Larry. I, huh. I, I knew when that this bill passed the Senate, I said, well, I know the House is just going to pass the version we did, but they'll at least do their own version. We'll sit down at a conference table and work something out. Right. The Republican House n- never even took up the bill in committee, yeah. their own bill, our bill, any bill. And so so five years went by and the House has sat on their hands. The House may pass, may do their first real votes on immigration in a long time tomorrow uh, on some competing bills, although mm-hmm. what we're hearing is it's not likely that either of the competing bills will pass at this point. Senator, let me ask you a question, um, because without being partisan about this, and I know I'm asking a Democratic senator yeah. <laughs> as much as possible, because— It will, I, yeah, it will be hard to, you know, it will be hard I, for I me to pretend— hey. An unbiased uh, yes. view. But. And, and you're running for office, and I get that. You know, there are positions that parties have to have. I understand that. But to me, this is a human issue. It's not really—it's one of those that goes beyond politics for me. You know, um, I, I was it looking should. at some early video of Reagan when he was debating George H.W. Bush in 1980, and they sounded like progressive Democrats, yeah. not even yeah. liberal Democrats. Like, what—and a lot of the rhetoric that— Trump used to get attention in the primaries, you know, the rapists and some of that stuff. But even beyond that, you know, the shithole country, excuse my language, you know, that sort of thing. It's that would have like here's what I'm trying to say. That gets him points in his party. What has happened over there? 
Well, well, Larry, I'll tell you, um, you know, the Republican Party was initially formed in the 1850s. A couple of different groups came together, Whigs, and then there was a group called the Know Nothing Party that were primarily an anti-immigration nativist party. And that, that was part of the original DNA of the Republican Party. And I think there's always been a strain of that, and President Trump plays to it. And you're right, let's, let's lay it all out there. This is a guy who was obsessed with the notion that President Obama wasn't a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. He's called countries, primarily ones where people's skin color are darker shades, shithole countries. He's ended the DACA program. He, ha- he wants to end the ability to seek asylum for domestic violence or violence in your neighborhood. He's making it hard for people to get visas to come in and do seasonal work. The number of ter- foreign tourists coming to the United States is going down. The number of foreign students mm-hmm. coming to the United States is going down. He's taken kids away from their families at the border. You can just go one issue. Oh, he wants to eliminate family unification, which has been a pillar of the immigration system forever. He wants sure. to get rid of the diversity visa program, which has been in place for 50 years. And he doesn't Legal even understand it. Too, right? No, that one, no way. <laughs> he doesn't but, understand But it's not just illegal immigration. He, right. he is persistently attacking even pillars of legal immigration. Well, that's and, more insidious and, to me, the attack on legal immigration. It is. It, yeah, I think it's a. I think it's a massive mistake of both compassion and heart. But let's just talk. Let's just talk economics. Sure. I'm 60 years old. Virginia. Using Virginia as an mm-hmm. example. When I was born, one out of a hundred Virginians was an immigrant, and we were bottom quarter per capita income. Mm-hmm. That was 60 years ago. Today, one out of every nine Virginians is an immigrant. We've gotten dramatically more international, and we're top quarter per capita income. And no state has changed their position better, like relative to other states than Virginia. This has been partly because of this new American community, because in a global economy, you end up getting people with talent and skill who know things about businesses or people in other parts of the world who can find customers there. So The growth of this new American uh, population in Virginia has coincided with us making this huge economic move from back to front. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have laws. You shouldn't enforce them. Mm -hmm. I voted for border security before. I'm sure I'll be voting for border security as long as I'm in the Senate. But the president starts off with a complete bias against immigrants, whether they be, you know, students, tourists, legal, illegal. He just starts off with that bias. And what our economics well, show, mainly what our brown, values show. Brown immigrants and, I think and that dark-skinned that's, immigrants. Look, yeah. Brown, dark-skinned, or Muslim. Yeah. You know, that, that, that they are gonna, they're going to face, you know, high hurdles before they get in, uh, where others might, others are going to face hurdles. But if you're darker-skinned or, or Muslim, you're going to face high hurdles. So and you talk about Virginia and how it's progressed, right, how it's progressed. But here's the thing. So in many parts of the country, and Virginia I know is blue now, right? It, was it red at some point? But it's, it's it, oh, I think yeah, it was no, blue. We, in the were, we were redder than red even when I ran my first statewide race in 2001. It's presidentially since right. 48. But, yeah, since President Obama decided in 08, and we were winning some statewide races, but President Obama was the first presidential candidate in a long time in 08 and said, I'm going to make an investment in Virginia. Yeah. And then when you do, you suddenly see, wow, there's a lot of Democrats out there. Well, so had, we are definitely trending blue. You had uh, Governor Wilder, I believe, uh, in Virginia. Yes. 
Yeah. It's First African-American elected governor, Doug Wilder, 1989. You guys were we keeping had, it 100 a while ago. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah we've, we've had an interesting one. The yeah. Democrats for a long time were segregationist Dixiecrats. Yes. Um, then there was a little Republican wave that swept them out during the 70s. Right. Then the Democrats got back in a very different kind of Democratic Party in the 80s. Then we were in the wilderness years in the 90s. But we've won the last 10 statewide races, four of the last five governor's races, last three presidentials. Because um, we understand who the new Virginia is, and we outreach mm-hmm. to the new Virginia. Okay, so let me ask you this: So, Virginia, I don't believe is a snapshot of the country. I think it, it's a unicorn in some ways, because it seems to me that for some reason, look at the last twelve years, or maybe ten years, would be fair that Republicans, you know, they have a majority in the Senate and House. Of course, they have the presidency now, of course, but they have so many state legislatures and uh, local municipalities. What's going on in this country with Democrats or the Democratic Party? I should yeah, say. I think I think the Democratic Party has been a really good party at winning popular votes in presidential elections. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, two out of the last five, you can win a popular vote and lose it in the Electoral College. We, we, we have possibly right, right. focused too much attention on winning the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can do it with a popular vote. We, we can do it. But. The Republicans, I'll give them credit. I think they focus more on state legislatures, mm-hmm. you know, fiercely redistricting in their favor mm-hmm. when they in 2011 when they had a lot of the levers. Right. And I think the Democrats have to get every bit as smart at that. We in Virginia uh, last year swept our statewide races and made dramatic pickups in the one house that was up, our lower house. And we're and we're really focused like a laser on next year, 2019, trying to take both houses. But but I think the Dems. Have done a better job of being kind of a presidential party, mm-hmm. including a party that's really energized in presidential years and not so good at, in the, at office, the you yeah. know locals, state legislatures, etc. Well, and all parties go through transitions and evolutions and all that kind of stuff. I mentioned Reagan right. and Bush. You know, Democratic yep. Party. It's hard for me to to look at and say where they are. Are they like a liberal centrist party, which was more of the establishment, or are they more of a progressive leftist party, which seems to be the tug and seems to be a lot well, of the emotional issues? Here's what I issues. would say, and I, and, and I think that there is a, there is a tug of war right now. I think mm-hmm. we're, we're a progressive party on social issues and shockingly unified given how you know, hard it is to corral Democrats. I mean, I think shockingly <laughs> unified on social issues, but there is a tug of war uh, in the Democratic Party over the economy. And I would say kind of to describe it kind of bluntly, mm-hmm. we got pro-growth progressives and we have pro-regulation redistribution progressives mm-hmm. and, and both different economic, you know, kind of, you know, centers of gravity in our party have some really good arguments and both have some hard questions to answer. And I think one of the things that we have to do in 18 you don't tell everybody you got to run your race this way. I think you let people run their races, take advantage of all the energy out there, see what works. But we will have to have a major um, effort between 18 and 20 to really telescope down into, okay, the the various wings of the party on the economy. We can agree on this core, even if there are some other issues that are outside the core that we can't agree on. We haven't done a good job on that. And the Republican economic message is like simple to the extreme ever since Reagan. What do you want to do? Grow the party, grow the economy. How do you want to grow the economy? Less taxes, less regulation. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really work. Doesn't work as well as infrastructure investment, education, fair wage policy. 
but at least they have a theory that's really simple that they repeat ad nauseum. Whereas the Dems, <laughs> I think, I think the Dems are more in the tug of war about is it you know is it is it fundamentally about growth or is it fundamentally about regulation redistribution? We have to bring the wings of our parties together. Where do you stand on that? Where are you? I, I'm more of I'm more of a pro growth Dem, and look, mm-hmm. I. I believe in regulation, and I've done a lot of it as a mayor and governor, but I feel like if we have to be we have to win the economic argument on we will grow the economy more than the other guys will. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, historical trends suggest that we do. We don't have to define growth the same way they do. If they're going to talk about the GDP and the stock market, we can talk about growth of wages, growth of people out of poverty, growth of new business startups. But we, if, if, the, if the R's are promising to grow the economy and we're promising to do anything else with it, I think we start behind them. We can make it up on other issues, but you don't want to start behind on the on the issue that matters the most to the most people. And in terms of how to grow the economy, when the R's say it's less taxes and less regulation, I think we say, no, it's infrastructure investment. It's human capital, you know, skills training, education, apprenticeships, uh, immigration. Um, and it's also wage policy. Women shouldn't get paid less than a man. You ought to have a minimum wage that doesn't put you below the poverty level. You shouldn't tax wages more than you tax investment earnings. I think a growth strategy that's about skills and jobs and wage is a better growth strategy than just cutting taxes and cutting regulation. Although it's hard to make any, I have a better idea argument when the economy is going well, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, um, I mean I've always we said, will see. I, I think it's yeah. going to be hard to beat Trump in 2020. I think the Democrats will have a swell in the midterms. That's just a historic thing, mm-hmm. you know, with all these issues. But yeah. I don't know how you beat Trump in 2020 with a strong, robust economy. Well, I, I, uh, I was tell us, I, I, tell us, Senator. Yeah, well, I'm, no, I'm going to, I'm going to take your challenge. I think <laughs> right. we should assume. Don't be complacent. It's going to be hard. Okay, I want, no, I want to tell everybody it's going to be hard to energize everybody to work. But yes. look, the economy is pretty strong now. But. President Trump's numbers aren't very good in Virginia. We have a 3.2% unemployment rate, and his numbers aren't very good because people are attributing that to a whole lot of things, not necessarily just to him, but they're deeply worried about his divisiveness. They're deeply worried about his selfishness. They're deeply worried about his pension for undercutting diplomacy wherever he goes. And so even with a, a good economy in Virginia right now, people are deeply, deeply worried about this president. And and. You know, even if you assume that this economy is the economy in 2020, I think I think there's going to be deep worries and skepticism in this country about the president because of who he is. This latest thing at the border, what he did definitely hit uh, America's moral gag reflex. Mm -hmm. Like, hold on a second. I mean, you know, we are too great a nation to stoop so low. And I and I don't I don't think the president is suddenly going to start behaving in a more appropriate manner. I I see more manic rather than less in his future. Yeah, when you see um, all the first ladies get together to make, yeah, I mean it was virtually a joint statement, really. I mean they all yeah, look at this. that's unprecedented. You know, even Melania. Uh, made a statement kind right, of against exactly. it. I've, not, I've <laughs> no, never it, said anything it, like that. It's like, you know you're is, married to that guy, right? Yeah, I mean, getting the first ladies to A, B together and B, be willing to speak out publicly, it is unprecedented. I, I don't know of one. And, I think even um, Eleanor Roosevelt came back from the grave to say a few things. <laughs> well, we, we could certainly, we know what she would say. Yes, That's exactly. Yeah. Do it, what do you think is more dangerous, Trump's rhetoric or his policies? 
Oh, policies. Yeah, policies. Really? You know, the, 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 yeah, the rhetoric has a brutalizing effect. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you know, name calling and all that. I mean, that that percolates down to kids and they think it's OK. And right. and it, it, it enables people who have the dark emotions inside of them, the people who who flock to Charlottesville out of some lost cause notion to to express violent tendencies last August. I mean, he didn't create those emotions, but he's his rhetoric emboldens people to say things they wouldn't have said and do things they wouldn't have done. So that's on both sides, enough, on both sides, yeah, though, to be fair. It, 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 it's true. It's true. The, <laughs> no, you, when you get when you get mad at stuff he does, <laughs> you know, then our tendency is to get in the same gutter he is in sometimes in the fight with him there. And that's not where we're going to win a battle is being in the gutter that he's in. So we always have to check ourselves on that while appropriately expressing righteous indignation over stuff he's doing. That's a hard balance sometimes. But I would still put the policies mm-hmm. as more dangerous. When you pull out of the Iran deal, you raise the risk of unnecessary war. When you pull mm-hmm. out of the Paris Climate Accord, you seat American leadership on one of the biggest issues in the in the future of the world. Um, and, and, and I could just go, you know, chapter and verse, all of the anti-immigration moves right. we talked about earlier, when you start to see foreign tourists say, yeah, I'm not going to take the vacation in the U S I'm going to go somewhere else. You're losing money. And when foreign students who come to our universities and pay full freight and because they're paying full freight in-state kids get a break, say, God, I don't want to go to the U S anymore. I'm going to go to Canada instead. And that's what we're seeing. Um, these immigration policies ultimately are chasing talent away, which has a long-term consequence uh, to our economy. So I, I think the policies are more dangerous, and sometimes the rhetoric and the bluster, although they have a negative effect, they pull our attention away from some of the more dangerous aspects of what the president's doing. Yeah, I think one of the things that could undermine the economy, and I'm certainly not rooting for that. I'm not one of those people that say, I hope it goes bad so you get out of there, you know. Yeah. I just, yeah. Hope, I just hope people do the right thing, you know, and vote them out. But um, mm-hmm. I honestly think that this nativism on trade is something that is going to bite him in the ass. And I think there's a lot yeah. of Republicans who cannot believe that he's acting the way he is on a lot of these trade agreements and trade policies. And Yeah, the trade issue, just it's using the one. Virginia example, but yeah. would be a microcosm for elsewhere. The, the most Republican, the most pro-Trump part of Virginia is rural Virginia. Mm-hmm. Well, the the when he imposes trade sanctions— even just imposing tariffs mm-hmm. on aluminum and steel is a net loss job loser for the United States. Mm-hmm. It helps the industries that make aluminum and steel, but it hurts the industries that make things out of aluminum and steel. And, the and percentages those don't make sense. a lot more workers. Yeah, those percentages don't make sense. I don't, I don't know why he doesn't understand that. It's such a simplistic nativist argument that he makes, but he doesn't understand the consequences of the actual playing out of any of these ideas. You get the feeling like they haven't thought the next step down the chessboard because just on the tariffs on aluminum and steel, mm-hmm. it's a net loser. But then when you – well, there is going to be retaliation, and the other nations retaliate, and, and yeah. they retaliate against you know soybeans and corn and, <laughs> yes. and pork and chicken and apples. And so the Virginia voters in rural Virginia who were the most supportive of President Trump are the ones who are most getting hurt mm-hmm. by what's going on right now. And I think that does pose a risk to the economy generally, but I also think it poses a risk, political risk to him. And, you know, you bring up Iran as something that you're concerned about, and there's certainly North Korea, which we can talk about. But 
I'll be honest with you, Senator. I'm concerned about China. I feel like yeah. China yeah. is that country out there that is about to have their century, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they feel like they are set up for it um, in so many different ways. But I feel like they're controlling the trade levers around the world right now mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also the aggression levers, you know. And that's mm-hmm. what's kind of behind the scenes kind of dictating some of this North Korea stuff, as you will. What, what, is, your, well, what is your take on China's position right now? Well, I think that, look, we can't keep them from being the largest economy no, in the world with cannot. the population that they have. We can't. No, we they're can't. going to be. Right. Um, and culturally, and culturally they're coming up. That's the thing, you know. Culturally and militarily. Yeah. You know, they, they the, the issue for China is, unlike the United States, we have military bases around the world, mm-hmm. and we, we uh, have assigned to ourselves in the aftermath of World War II a global security responsibility, China has basically had the position of, we want to be stable as a country, and we also kind of want to control, be in control of what's going on in our region, so Asia, um, and they reject, you know, the U.S. being too involved in their region. Mm-hmm. They haven't yet shown that what they want is a global kind of national security military presence with bases everywhere, mm-hmm. but they are making significant commercial investments everywhere, all throughout Africa, all throughout the Americas, um, and they are still very engaged in, in activity that we should find really threatening. Just in the last two weeks, you know, there's been news about Chinese hacking into an American contractor's computer to get very sensitive submarine technology secrets from the United States and um, American personnel at a China, at a console in Guangzhou, China, being subject to attacks like the attacks in Cuba mm-hmm. of American personnel. We don't know enough to say that that's China doing the attacks. Yeah, what it, was it could that? be somebody else. That was bizarre. Was, people had like coughing attacks or something, or it's they're they're, they're bizarre. They're kind of like sonic attacks or it, sonic attacks. Yeah, some like, suggestion. And I'm not talking about the drive-in here. You know, no, I'm talking no, about yes, the, right, right. I'm, yeah. You know, some kind of low-level sound that is causing headaches and nausea right. and like concussions, like low-level concussions. It's like a Bond villain doing it or something. You know? at, at, it's, it's bizarre, and we had American personnel in Cuba, and that's under investigation, but now American personnel in China, and the symptoms are very, very similar. That doesn't mean it's China that's doing it. Um, mm-hmm. It could be somebody else trying to screw around with us, but obviously we got a lot to worry about with China. And and Trump likes to use language that's confrontative, but the best way we can actually, um, you know, position vis-a-vis China is trying to be competitive, so economically competitive and competitive in education. Uh, immigration helps us there. You know, if we get the most talented people who want to come here to learn and start businesses and succeed rather than elsewhere, that's going to be part of our competitive edge. And the president right now is just shutting off that spigot um, and chasing talented people away. Why are you running for the Senate again, uh, Senator? What is, what, is, what is your plan? Yeah, well, I well, Larry, first— I love my job. I, I tell people every day I don't represent D.C. to Virginia. I represent Virginia to D.C. So mm-hmm. basically I do two things. I listen to problems that Virginians have and try to solve them. Or I hear about cool things that Virginians are doing that are solutions to problems and try to bring them to Washington and do more of them. The work that I do in the Senate is heavily focused on some areas. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. Virginia's very connected to the military. I got a kid in the military. So I'm very focused on keeping the nation safe. But also I have a particular passion about 
bringing down unemployment among, among veterans and military spouses. Mm-hmm. Foreign Relations Committee, with a particular focus on the Americas because of having been a missionary in Honduras. Um, I also have worked my way into a position of expertise on the Senate on what's the right role of the president and Congress in war, peace, and diplomacy. I don't think a president should be able to start a war without Congress, but Congress lets him. I don't think president should be able to start a trade war without Congress, but Congress lets him. (laughs) And when presidents do diplomacy, we need to let presidents do diplomacy, but deals should be brought back to Congress for approval. So this is an area that I love. So I really like my job. And now recently, I'm also on the Health and Education Committee where I can protect the Affordable Care Act and go to the next step. My my goal has been what it has been since I moved to Virginia in 1984 to work as a civil rights lawyer at Virginia that works for all. So mm-hmm. it's got to be about Virginia. It's got to be about work and the dignity of work and everybody having an economic opportunity. And then the last two words for all out of the Pledge of Allegiance, we can't pit our regions against each other. We can't pit people against each other based on their race or where their parents were born or the language they speak or the religion they practice. And mm-hmm. in Virginia, you know, we gave to the nation the equality ideal. Then we turned our back on it from about 1840 <laughs> until, you know, for a very long time. And we're finally kind of back on the let's be about equality. Let's, we call, you know, Virginia's for I lovers. Virginia's for let's lovers. Yeah, that. I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. They never you know, said they're for equality. They only said they're for, for lovers. <laughs> yeah. So we don't want to be, we don't want to be for haters. And I, I feel like we're doing a lot of things right, and the progress is going the right direction, but we got a lot more to do. Do you think Obamacare can be salvaged? I mean, you mentioned that. I feel like the rug has been pulled out from under that in so many different, yeah, um, just right. cynic, in so many different cynical ways too. Because a lot of it happened as it was being launched. You yeah. know, it was all these predictions. It's not going to do well, and I'm going to make sure it doesn't by doing this. You know, well, if, and well, all you're the right. there cynical were, things there the were president some elements. Right. Yeah, some elements of compromises right at the beginning, like you would have a reinsurance program, which we have in flood insurance, crop insurance, Medicare Part D, but it would expire at the end of three years. Well, wait a minute, why did you why did you set it up so that it would expire? Reinsurance, if we still had that mm-hmm. reinsurance program, it would have premiums down significantly. And then President Trump has just sabotaged it one way after the next. Oh, but the, but the answer is yes, it, it still can be salvaged. And in Virginia, we just finally embrace Medicaid expansion. That means 400,000 more Virginians are going to have health insurance, some for the first time in their lives. Right. So we're not just talking about protecting it and not backsliding. We're still stepping forward. Here's something I have on the table that I think would be a good salvage. Mm-hmm. Keep the the basic Obamacare framework, um, including the exchanges, mm-hmm. but just add to every individual exchange a policy that called Medicare X. Ask Medicare to develop an insurance policy that they would sell to working age people that would cover the Obamacare essential health benefits. Put that on the on the uh, on the markets. You got to pay a premium for it. If you if you qualify for a subsidy, you can apply that subsidy to bring the premium down even more. But Larry, here's what it would do within the Obamacare framework: a Medicare X policy doesn't have to cover a profit margin, doesn't have to pay fancy salaries, doesn't have to pay state and local taxes, doesn't have to return to shareholders, doesn't have to pay a big fancy advertising bill, doesn't have to set up in every zip code because they already are in every zip code. A Medicare X policy would, would give everybody an additional option that would be dramatically cheaper than what they have now within the Obamacare framework. And I think that that would be a really strong thing that we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, are you going to run for president? No, I I, uh, I loved my 105 day magical mystery <laughs> tour <laughs> in 2016, but I uh, you know, part of part of part of the Be lesson honest. that I derived from that. 
There's no place like home. Good and night. I really, my, my, my commitment is, is to Virginia. So I'm hoping to get elected and stay in the Senate from Virginia for a long time. A lot of people, <laughs> I think one of the, what are the descriptions of you were like, you're everyone's favorite middle school teacher. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't exactly, <laughs> nobody said I should be in Hollywood or, yes. you know, or, 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 you know, my visage should be in an art museum, but people thought I, yeah. you know, I, I had a kind of pleasantly dorky quality, I but guess. Was, yeah, but I, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, we are who we are, but do you think a nice guy can be president, especially running against somebody like Trump or do do the Democrats need like do they need like a charismatic asshole excuse my language once again (laughs) (laughs) I think I think it's got to be authentic you know and so any type if it's authentic could work and any type if it's inauthentic would fail you know I I think um, you know Trump's got a high degree of baloney to him and so I think uh, uh, you know say whatever you want about all the negative rhetoric etc but Mm -hmm. you can he's also got a high baloney content and i think that that's just that just means that the person just that will ultimately be up against him in 2020 should be kind of a real deal yeah let me ask you just a couple more and thanks so much for giving me your time i know you're so busy today but oh, yeah, um, no, this, this is good but i know uh the person you're running against i think one of the things that struck me about i don't even know if it's a position or a stance and in this whole confederate uh history thing that people want yeah. to preserve. What? Let me ask you this, because you're from Virginia, you're from the South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why don't white Southerners get what's wrong with Confederate imagery being publicly displayed in the way that it's being celebrated? Why don't yeah. they get what's wrong with that? Why is that? You know, Larry, I'll tell you, I, I think increasingly they do. Um, and so increasingly cities you know, everywhere states are, are are changing the way they talk about their history. But they also, um, in, you know, what was it that Faulkner said, uh, you know, in the South, uh, um, history isn't dead. It's, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. Yeah. There, is a, there is a little bit of a veneration for the kind of uh, continuity of history, including the past. He also said history is the effort to create a usable past, so mm-hmm. you don't want to just throw it all away. You want to absorb the lessons from it. So, and the South, I, you know, the South look, and also the South, they treat the Civil War like it was a soccer match or something, you know, and yeah, you yeah. know, and they had a team that they that they're still fans of or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's. I mean, in Virginia, when I was mayor of Richmond, you know, capital of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. we we took some buildings and and infrastructure down that were named after Confederate heroes, but we kept some up and maintained some. We put up a lot of new statues or buildings and named them after new people, civil rights heroes, et cetera. We do some renaming. My, my school board two nights ago renamed uh, uh, Jeb Stewart uh, Elementary School after that will now be the Barack Obama Elementary School. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Although there's no danger that Jeb Stewart will be forgotten in Richmond. He's got a statue. He's got Stewart Circle. He's got all kinds of other things named after him. So I, I, I would always give advice to, to mayors and governors who would ask me about it because I've dealt with it as a Southern mayor and governor is first, the quality of the listening you do will, will maximize the acceptability of the decisions you make. So really engage your community in deep discussion. And then the second thing I always tell mayors and governors is it's not only about subtraction, it's also about addition. How many 
squares are there where there could be statues? How many stories of heroes that are untold are there out there to tell? Um, if you think about the task as one that's you know, do we take some stuff down or do we change your names from names we don't like, but also to wait, what are the stories out there that we haven't ever told? You got to think about the subtraction part, but you got to think about the addition part too. Well, to me, it's even simpler than that. It's like, look, the Confederacy fought for slavery. You know, they committed a treasonous act. No ifs, ands, or buts. They fought for slavery. Yes, they succeeded from the union. I right, mean, you get argument about that. I mean, you 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 still find some some fantasists, frankly, who yeah, will try true. to argue with you about you know slavery wasn't uh, the cause of it. But no, if you oh, go back and it. read the documents, no, I read them. Bad. Believe me, and you know <laughs> <laughs> these this whole notion that black people need to get over slavery is 150 years ago. You know, the Confederacy lasted four years for Christ's sakes, and yeah, they don't have to that, they don't have to get over that. You know, they right. no, they can preserve that. And slavery lasted for hundreds of years. Well, yeah, the way I talk about African-American history, we're we're getting to commemorate next year the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first captured slaves at Point Comfort, Yay! Virginia, and now Hampton. <laughs> and so you think about 400 years of African-American history, right. and you can call it eight half centuries, five of the eighths. Five of the eight half centuries, African-Americans were enslaved. The next two eighths, now we're up to seven eighths, legally second class status, segregated schools, voting, et cetera, legally segregated. And only in the last one eighth of the history has there been no de jure, you know, blunt de jure blatant, but there's still plenty of de facto and social discrimination. So and during, yeah, to, to and during 25, to get over that. And during 25 of those years, OJ was popular. So there you go. I mean, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed kind of random, but I mean, you yeah, know, that's random, okay. randomness is it's part kinda, of life. It's kind of how I do it. Well, Senator, thanks so much for your time. Um, I know you got to run, but um, we're we're all very concerned here. I'm, hopefully this issue with the border, you know, this current issue is solved. But there's so much more that we need to get done. Do you, Are you hopeful that something will get done on immigration that we can all be happy with? We offered the president a bipartisan proposal in February. There was a true compromise. Yes, I remember. Things yeah. that we, you know, border security in exchange for permanent protection for dreamers. And then we'll sit down and talk about anything else. We had reason to believe he was going to accept it. But when it hit his desk, the hardline political people in the White House told him, you can't do this. You're going to alienate your base. And so he poured cold water all over it. Um, I don't view his sniveling retreat today as a sign of great enlightenment in the White House now about the virtues of a a real effort to find bipartisan compromise in immigration. So I I have low expectation about what this administration would be willing to do uh, until after November. But hopefully the American public will send a message in November that will, you know, make them more willing to do stuff. And whatever the administration's policy is, Congress isn't an Article two and a half branch that has to play Mother May I with an executive. We should we should do our thing and put bills on his desk and let him decide what he's going to do with them. Yeah, and then he'll just pass an executive order and we'll ignore it all. I think if we give him a bill, even if he threatens to veto it, if it lands on his desk, he'll suddenly sign it and announce it was his idea. Well, if you put some KFC next to it, then he might, yeah. you know. That's a, you know what? I hadn't thought of that. But yeah. I'm going to make that suggestion to Chuck Schumer. So I love everything that's next to, to fried chicken. <laughs> <Anyhow>. <laughs> yeah, KF, and KFC, I think he has a, uh, I think he's got a, 
predilection for KFC based on what I've heard. Yeah, he's, he just has a predilection for trash going into him and trash coming out of him. That's how I like to say. <laughs> All right. All right, Senator. Thank you so much. Good luck with your, with your re-election uh, bid and good luck with the future of our country. Yeah. We, we really we'll, need uh, we'll, measured, sane, competent voices like you, sir. Thank you very much. We'll be out, we'll be out battling. Thanks, Larry. Take care. Okay, take care. Bye.